Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a great guest here today for Spirit in Action, an inspirational thinker and feeler and trailblazer. I first spoke with Liam Hooper back in 2017 as a trans man living in North Carolina at a time when the state was putting up barriers to trans folks. Liam led some of the debate for inclusion, notably from a theological perspective. We've occasionally been featuring episodes of a series made by Liam Hooper along with Peterson Toscano called Bible Bash within our Spirit in Action broadcasts. Liam has just released a new book called Transforming Proclamation, a transgender theology of daring existence, which will upset some people's apple carts, but most likely open eyes and minds and hearts to a better, more wholesome view of sexual and gender identity in the broader spiritual and religious constellations. Be sure to check the NordenSpiritRadio.org website for the bonus excerpts connected with this interview that will not fit in the broadcast version. Liam Michael Hooper joins us via Zoom from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Liam, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Well, thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to be with you again. And it's wonderful to have this book, which I think was something like four years in the making. Congratulations, you've issued this proclamation. Thank you, Mark. It's a fascinating thing, writing a book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm always telling people it's surreal, you know, like the idea that you have something to say that might be worth spending money putting on printed pages itself is a weird thing, right? Like it's very strange to suddenly think of yourself and your thoughts as important enough to preserve them in this way. Yet I think I'm self-critical enough that I'm avoiding any kind of undue arrogance about it. But at the same time, it's it's really, it feels good. It feels good to have taken all that stuff that's been floating around in my head and actually put it down and see it in print. I got some glimpse of the process simply because I've known you for a couple few years, but also because in your acknowledgments, you talk a bit about the whole process that got you here, all the nurture and support that got you to this point. And so I thought we should start off with the acknowledgments as opposed to the substance of transforming proclamation. Who would you care to acknowledge on air that in many ways uh, led to this birth? Well, I think first and foremost, and I believe this is the order I actually do it in, in the acknowledgements, I have to say my spouse, Diana, is, is just a gift, gift to the world, I think, but certainly to me, her patience and belief in the project and the toll it took on us for me to be trying to cobble together enough work to pay the bills and riding around work and you know, riding around our lives was a huge gift to me, and I'm eternally grateful. But then also, there's the relationship between me and Chris Page, my publisher, editor. You know, Chris and I go back to probably 2010 or 11 when we met at a trans conference, which was the conference where I met a lot of people important 
though somewhat maybe on the fringes of this project, people like Lewis Mitchell and Monica Roberts, who I talk about in the In Memoriam section, so many people I met at that one conference who are such valuable members of our community. There's such a list of them. I met David Weekly there, Carmarian Anderson, Bobby Jean Baker. So anyway, that it makes me a little misty when I think about Bobby Jean and Moni. Um, so that conference was really huge because it began this relationship that has become an important part of my life and my work for trans advocacy and activism and my whole disposition toward what I call theological activism. And Chris and Lewis Mitchell and I have been in relationship through trans faith, which Chris and Lewis co-founded some 20 some years ago. And then there are people like my Hebrew teacher when I was in Christian divinity school, surprisingly, since I've since become a Jew, Dr. Clinton Moyer has been a big thought partner with me in my interrogation of Hebrew and my love of it. And I came to love Hebrew because of Clinton Moyer. Then there's my rabbi. My rabbi and I have been studying and reading Torah together for six years now often weekly or at least bi-weekly, and that formative process is very much in the book. And then there's people like Kate Bornstein, who I first met when I was 20, 21 years old, living in Philadelphia, and Kate was in transition when we met, and we worked in the theater together. In addition to taking me to my first AA meeting, sort of shaking and baking and spilling more coffee on myself than I was drinking, Kate was one of the first people to really, really believe in me in a way that encouraged me to start believing in myself. And so I pay homage to that relationship. I believe, I thank even Dr. Joy Layden, whose companionship has really been meaningful to me, and Peterson. Peterson Toscano. <laughs> Your fellow Quaker Peterson, Thomas Toscano, yes, who befriended me at that same conference. It was the first time I saw Peterson perform Transfigurations, and he and I were talking afterwards and just have been sort of spiritually bonded at the hip since then. And it has been one of the greatest gifts of my life, both in terms of my own formation, but also just the deep friendship and sort of brothership of an odd kind that, that Peterson and I have. And I have developed as a professional and, and fleshed out how I think about things as much as I even don't like terms like professional. But the way that I do sort of my anti-colonizer professionalism has been given space to grow and develop and find its voice in my relationship with Peterson and the projects that we do together. There's a whole host of people who made this possible for me. And that's why I wanted to start with it. Again, Liam Hooper's book, Transforming Proclamation, there is a whole dense center section, which I would describe as poetic. It's more like the Psalms than it is like Proverbs. So when I got to the end, I was saying, what were the ingredients that went into this stew that produced this evolving amorphous mosaic, which is this book? Uh, mosaic, I think, is a word that fits well for it. As I've been sitting through it, I found out I could not read the book in a kind of straightforward, okay, I'm going to absorb that point, move on to the next. I couldn't do that with this book because in the same way that poetry requires some kind of ingesting, transforming inside, this book needs that kind of absorbing to me. That's my take on it. Feel free to react with your own point of view, Liam. <laughs> so first of all, I'm just, I'm receiving that and trying not to get a little weepy with the depth of the accolade there, because I know you need to be a pretty sophisticated reader. 
So I think mosaic is a beautiful word. And if you don't mind, I may snatch it up. (laughs) Permission granted. (laughs) Thank you. We were aware that it's sort of genre busting, right? Like it doesn't fit how we tend to engage certainly theological work. And it's not exactly memoir. It's not exactly autobiographical, right? It transcends a lot of that stuff by intent. So my short answer to your question is that I, as the thinker of these things and the former of these ideas, was committed to the book doing, or at least attempting to do, what it proposes. Therefore, Chris was also very invested in that. So we really wanted to produce a book that was not academic, even though it is. I'm kind of sneaky about how I do it, but you know, there's no list of references at the end and I'm not regurgitating what someone says and then either taking issue with it or using it to support my own viewpoint. I'm telling you my life, but I'm telling you my life through scripture and how I have come to approach scripture and what I have come to believe about what it means to be a human being. And to me, that's poetic. You can't talk about what it is to be a human being without at least leaning toward the poetic. And I think it's also safe to say, and then I'll shut up and and let you process that, that I am kind of a still dreaming and somewhat frustrated, hopeful poet myself, right? Like if you had asked me 10 years ago, what would you like to do with your life? I'd say I'd like to become self-sufficient enough I could retire and just try to figure out how to be a poet. So when I write, I think that way, if that makes any sense. It makes sense to me. And I mean, I know you got your divinity license so that you could practice as a UCC minister. You've already mentioned being in the theater when we were talking earlier. You're talking about studying in the area of literature. All of that makes sense to me. I've found you to have some of the most incisive and cogent analysis of Scripture. And by analysis, I don't mean separating it down to letters. I mean separating it down to the fractal meanings behind the letters. And I've found you to be real insightful that way. That's why I love hosting Bible Bash every three months or six months or something. I have on Spirit in Action some episodes of Bible Bash that Liam Hooper and Peterson Toscano do together. So, folks, that's on NordenSpiritRadio.org, as well as my previous interviews with Liam and Peterson and Citizens Climate Radio and other things with, that they're all involved in. I wanted to start out with one thing that it felt to me that you speak about it implicitly in the book, but if you were into a linear way of relating things, I think it would have been at the beginning of the book. You experienced some traumas about your own experience about your gender identity and how your family handled it, by the way, and how the medical world handled it. So you do mention that in there. But I think that this book, which might be called theology, poetic theology, I'm not sure exactly which term works well, poetic theology, mosaic, it comes and it acknowledges regularly throughout the book the damage done to people who don't fit in the neat categories, admitting that no one fits in a neat category. I, for instance, identify as a cisgender male heterosexual. And I would, I've tried to analyze in myself, and I feel like maybe I'm about 10% gay curious or something like that. That's, <laughs> that's about it as much as I've found in myself. I've tried to be open to it, right? 
and say, if I didn't have a prejudice against it, how much would I express? I haven't had to deal with the major trauma that I think is visited on people who don't fit in major ways in gender or sex. And that in some ways could have been the first chapter of this book. Here's why to write this book, because that trauma, that exclusion does happen. And as I said, you refer to it throughout the book, Liam, but could you give me an overview of the impulse behind writing this particular theology mosaic? So I think my first response is one of the primary reasons that I sort of mention my own personal experience almost matter-of-factly, almost as if, well, so this happened, and then I move on from that while also acknowledging that it has residual effects, right? Like it it wasn't a thing that happened and it was discreet and momentary or temporary and then it was done, right? Like it lives in my skin. So that was one reason I did it that way was to convey it's not this thing that happened discreetly for a period and then it was over. It is who I am that I carry that tendency to dissociation, to the memory impairments, that parts of me were robbed from me. But I also did not want that to be the overarching narrative. And there's a reason for that that is really important, I think, to almost every person I know who identifies somewhere along the transgender kaleidoscopic spectrum is that so often when people ask us to speak or ask us about our lives, what they really want to do is what some of us in the movement Chris and Lewis and the rest of us refer to as trauma tourism, right? They want to hear the really awful, sad story, have a good cry, and then feel cleansed in some way. Like, okay, now I've learned it's traumatic, it's awful, and they want to feel sorry for us. And then our trauma becomes the narrative. And there are many, many problematic things about that, not the least of which is that we then have trouble seeing ourselves as people with more than trauma, people with gifts and wisdoms and insights and complications and contradictions and healing and periods of real recovery and backsliding and healing some more, just like every other human being who has endured something difficult, right? So I think that's one approach to the book, right? I wanted to be able to put all of that intention with joy and praise of creation and our place in it and the reality that we belong and that the world needs us. We're necessary to understanding what it is to be a human being. So there's that. Then there's also my awareness that my story is one story among a world of stories. And those stories matter as much or more than mine. They all cumulatively help us write the story of the human condition. And that that is important And I don't want to lose sight of that. And I don't want my story to be the focus of this larger thing I'm trying to tell, which is our presence throughout human history and how we ignore and vilify the history of gender transcendent people to the detriment of all human beings. And that the betterment of all human beings is lifting up difference and particularity. Let's spell out who this book is for. Was it written for me? as, you know, a cisgender male who's, I don't know if I'm trans curious. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know what I am. <laughs> what I would like to be is compassionate. I would like to be listening. I would like to be receptive to having veils removed from my eyes that I don't know are there. 
So that's part of it. But I had the feeling that so much of this book is really speaking to the people who've been taught that they don't belong, that that was the primary audience that you were aiming toward. Yes, but I'm also writing it for you. So I did a sneaky thing. And I think astute readers like yourself, particularly readers like yourself who are compassionate in the way that you are, will sense what I did. The first thing I do is I say it's a non-academic project by intention, a refusal to use the academic tropes that have been used against us to be an apologetics for us. I refuse to do apologetics. There are multiple reasons for that. One of them is just how problematic academic supremacy and exceptionalism is, that there's only this one way of gaining knowledge and imparting knowledge and curating knowledge, and that that determines what knowledge is valuable. Like I'm giving a big holy finger to that in a way, so to to speak. But I'm doing that also with a heart toward my people. Like I come out and say at the beginning of the book, this book is for us, for my kindred for all the misfit, outcasts, freaks, geeks, weirdos, and beardos, and people who have been told you are less than and you don't belong because you embody your identity in a way that makes people uncomfortable, particularly a gender transcendent way, but all of us who are quirky and different and don't fit and never have and perhaps never will, and that that is glorious and a thing to be celebrated. So I'm very clearly saying that. But then I go about creating a very intentional, long thought out and developed constructive theology. And then at the end of the book, I do an academic thing and tell you how to do it or tell you how I did it or how I do it. That is a very academic process, but I'm refusing to do the academic tropes because I'm making a very specific proclamation about knowledge and wisdom and insight and bodies and experience and scripture freed from the ivory towers and the keepers of the faith. The people who say this is the faith and only the faith and only these people can have it because they do it properly, right? So I'm trying to explode like a big geode, which is one of the images I use in the book, all of this stuff, primarily to my kindred, but in the hope that you too will read it. And in the very intentional hope that it will end up in academic spaces and call them to not only engage with us in a different way, and with theorizing about us and coming to have understanding of us in a different way, but also examine their own process. You also aim it at not only people who have conventional theology or have accepted the conventional word theology. You use an amazing array of vocabulary to talk about this thing. I think your general belief is that everybody has theology. Yes, Not everybody is comfortable with the word theology because it has sometimes this word, sometimes it's God, sometimes it's Yahweh, sometimes it's any of the Eastern, I mean, the Tao. I mean, people can phrase this central thing in so many different ways. You spend several pages talking about addressing it to people inclusive of however they name or deal with this thing. I hereby free you to do that rap right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming you're talking about my talking about God is messy chapter. Yes. And yeah. And who is God and why does it matter? So th- this book is very much invested in exploding even what we mean by the term God and inviting people to work that out for themselves. That that on one level is part of the healing we need to do as people who've been beaten to death with God. 
or with someone else's God. So I talk about the people of no God, the people of many gods, the people of God, little G and the people of God, big G and all the traditions that create that and complicate it and stir the pot and confuse it and calling us to recognize this is just messy stuff. It's messy, period. So can we conceive of something larger and different from that, that allows us to open our minds in a different way and perhaps get in touch with our own longing? So I talk about God in terms of longing, God's longing and ours. I talk about God in terms of names that we don't typically use, like the abiding one, the sustainer, creator, all these different words to help people feel invited to keep naming God for themselves and to distance themselves from the institutionalized God that has so often been used against us. And I talked about the no God too, the doubters and the disbelievers, because they help us understand our own faith system. There's a whole vocabulary that you build and thresh out. And again, my take on this, Liam, is that you're not trying to put the final point on anything. This is a mosaic that you're building, fully acknowledging that other people have pieces to add to the mosaic. Yes. But there's some vocabulary that you thresh out and explore with many adjectives and modifiers. But one of those words is the grove. I think that those of us who grew up in Christian tradition, and I grew up Catholic, Eden is a picture. And you mentioned Eden several times, but the grove, which direction do you go from Eden to get to the grove? I think the grove is in Eden and Eden is in the grove. So I just did, (laughs) made me think of the character, the chink, and even cowgirls get the blues where on one side of the cave, he writes, everything is sacred. And on the other side, he writes, nothing is sacred. Right. So I I realized I just made a a statement that's probably not very helpful, but (laughs) the book really revolves around this imagery of what I call the grove or the sacred grove, which is both allegory and real place both metaphor and living thing. And I take a great deal of time, rather poetically, I hope, and I hope intelligently to talk about what that means. And so basically what I'm working with is this idea that the grove is both the germinal ground of all that is. It's the place where creation bursts forth and takes a breath with creator all at the same time. And that all the stuff that is now ever was or will be is born there, if only in um, the image that the Abrahamic traditions have, right, of this God's imagining of things and then making those things, right? So that's one image. But the grove is both this primordial and yet always present origin of all that is, where everything that is now, ever was, or ever will be was imagined into being. And it is also the very intentional space that those who are cast out from a share in the benefits, resources, protections, and embrace of the wider culture are driven. So one of the images I give is hush harbors, where enslaved peoples would gather. Druid groves, right? So I'm calling up this understanding that we as human beings have poetically and allegorically used this image more than once and in multiple ways. And I'm sort of culling all of that and exploding it 
all at the same time and saying that gender transcendent people are children of the grove. And yet we carry the grove in us and the grove carries us. Let's also discuss who gender transcendent people are. I think it's a definition that cannot have hard lines by its very substance. That is to say, do I get to be a gender transcendent person if I'm only 10% gender transcendent? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. But I think there's some people who've definitely been shut out of the existing world who you're especially trying to address with that term. Yes. So in the words matter chapter, where I talk about words matter because they are matter, I flesh this out even more, but basically I'm using the term gender transcendent to refer to all persons who do not ascribe in some heartfelt and identity-based way with the gender and or sex assigned to them at birth. So whereas often the term transgender is only designed to capture people who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, genderqueer, transsexual, transmasculine, transfeminine, and tends to sometimes push intersex people to the margins, I'm including us all. And part of what I'm hoping to do is draw attention to the rather arbitrary and somewhat false distinctions we've made to define sex, gender, and personhood, and say that those things that we claim are somehow absolutes in nature aren't actually and never have been absolutes. And so any of us who do not think of ourselves as cisgender, identifying with the gender or sex assigned to us at birth, who don't think of ourselves then as also heteronormative in that way, probably fall in a kaleidoscopic sort of mosaic spectrum of gender. And we have not only stories to tell, but experience and wisdom and insight about what it means to be a human being in this larger collective narrative that the world needs. Folks, we are speaking with Liam Michael Hooper today for Spirit in Action. His website, liammichaelhooper.com. You can also trace him to ministriesbeyondwelcome.org. Those links are on Northern Spirit Radio, together with all the links of the guests I've had for Spirit in Action for the past 15 years. Liam's been here before, and he makes a regular appearance, or an irregular appearance, actually, when I have have him and Peterson Toscano co-host the Bible Bash here for Spirit in Action. His latest book, it's called Transforming Proclamation, A Transgender Theology of Daring Existence. And again, website liammichaelhooper.com will get you there. Otherwise, Engaged Publishing is part of what you want to look up about this. In general, come to nordenspiritradio.org and explore all of these guests. And remember to post comments. We love interactive communication. We love the fact that people share their piece of the mosaic. So please do that by posting on nordenspiritradio.org. There's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported, not by government, not by corporations, but by you, the listeners. Support your local community radio station. We have some 42 stations nationwide carrying our programs, and they need your support. I'd actually ask for you to start by supporting them because Media is such an important part of getting any message out. As you've heard Liam say earlier, 
in terms of publishing, he had to explore being a publishing house himself or with other folks engaged because there's a filter that happens when you go to mass media. And so much of that happens with radio. So support those local community radio stations with your hands, with your wallet and support people like Liam Michael Hooper. Did you, By the way, Liam, did you try and crowdsource this book or did you just dig deep into your pockets or you know mortgage your house or whatever? How did you take the time and the money to actually put out a print book? So mostly I didn't sleep for about nine months. <laughs> I mean, really. And it was very, very difficult. But we managed to do it. And thankfully, my marriage survived. And in some ways, I think we're probably closer than we were because I'm less frustrated by not having said the things that I want to say. Then, you know, there was the birth of Otherwise Engaged Publishing through these conversations that I mentioned earlier that all of us were having. You know, Chris Page was inspired to work with the community in a way that birthed Otherwise Engaged Publishing. So it's we're not self-publishing in the way that people tend to think of. You know, we have reader groups, we edit rigorously. You know, we do, as a group of people invested in this, who Chris has invested in, good work. And part of the thing that makes Otherwise Engaged Publishing so wonderful is there's Chris's book, Otherwise Christian, which is sort of a toolkit. It's a distillation of trans-leaning theology, trans theology, queer theology that is trans-embracing. And what Chris has done with that book is marvelous. So if you wanted like one book that was a theological sort of warehouse, it would be Otherwise Christian. So then Chris took that framework and invited submissions for two more anthologies. So there's Otherwise Christian too that is all just trans people of different faiths and some of no faith submitting works for these anthologies. Otherwise Christian 2 is out there and Otherwise Christian 3 is pending. So there's this whole community of gender transcendent writers and thinkers and theological rabble rousers and theorists producing work through otherwise engaged publishing that people would otherwise not have access to. It's a really beautiful thing. I'm tempted, maybe because I was a physics teacher and a math major and all these kind of things, to sometimes try and approach things somewhat methodically. I do believe in the scientific method, but it can also be a soul killer yes. to be too <laughs> numerical. Actually, one of the deep insights I had was back in 1980 was that no amount of atoms or waveforms can speak of meaning, that meaning is something that exists beyond. So when you say people of no faith, I actually have an issue with that. Everybody has faith because if you didn't have faith, you would die. Yes. You would kill yourself. You would allow yourself to expire. I agree with you. So I use that terminology not because I believe there's such a thing as no faith. I use it out of respect for people who believe they're not people of faith because they think of it as being people of religion. There's another term you use in the book that is worth some elaboration. I mean, there's a lot of them that are, but it's right in the title of the book, trans dash Forming, transforming proclamation of transgender theology of daring existence. There's that word proclamation. And you know, when I think of the word proclamation, 
the thing that comes to mind immediately for me is the Emancipation Proclamation. That's the place where I remember it being used most. And in some ways, this is an Emancipation Proclamation as well. But you use the proclamation as opposed to sermon. You draw a very clear distinction between those. And since you actually became a UCC minister in the past, you were supposed to give sermons, right? And there's a part of you which I think probably would be excellent at doing that trope. But a proclamation is something different, and I'm going to attach an adjective better than a sermon. Could you speak about the distinction and the value of proclamation? I think I can. I think I do that throughout the whole book, and I'm going to invite people to see how I parse that out in different ways at different times. But I think when I'm after, you're the first person so far, and I'm thrilled beyond measure, to refer to the Emancipation Proclamation. Because on a very fundamental level, that's the kind of proclamation I'm after. So I break it. At some point, I get out the Merriam-Webster's and I say, this is what proclamation means. It means to declare something of importance and to do it with some fervor and commitment, right? Like this thing matters and here's why, and I'm willing to assert that it matters. So that is the primary level of proclamation I'm talking about. In Christendom in particular, people are conditioned and sort of enculturated to think of proclamation as sermonic, as it's all about sermon and for the purpose of teaching. Yes, I'm doing that, but I'm really employing it more in its Hebraic sense, right? In the Jewish tradition of what prophets do, which goes back to your emancipation proclamation image, right? The, the prophet made proclamations that were very clearly defined about what is acceptable and how we comport ourselves in a universe that functions on the assumption there is God, where we assume God is present. How should we comport ourselves and how should we absolutely not comport ourselves, right? This is the core of prophetic proclamation. And so, I'm also lifting that trope up all the way down to the stuff that, you know, we would think of as the prophets doing crazy things, you know, like running around naked or, you know, wearing a yoke around their neck or laying on the ground for some extensive number of days, whatever, even down to what we do with our bodies. And so what I'm proclaiming is that the presence of gender transcendent people all along this amazing spectrum is itself a proclamation that we survive, that we find grove spaces, that we can even engage healing from so much of the damage that was done to us and then find ways to thrive is itself a living proclamation. And so what I'm inviting us to do is recognize that, claim it, claim it as a place of deep spiritual and sociopolitical power and become intentional about using that in whatever way we're comfortable with. Someone said to me once, so you're telling every trans person they need to come out, every trans or intersex. And I'm saying, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is, however, it's comfortable for you to assert the proclamation of your life, do that because we need you to do it. All of us and those of us yet to come need you to do it. Because I'm a logical-oriented person, because I've been a computer programmer for 40 years, I do tend to think logically. And if this loop works, then it does that. And I know your mind works very well that way. Your theological analysis, your theological diving strikes me as having one of the keenest minds I've met. So as you talk about transforming proclamation, it's very clear to me that people who have been othered because of their sex or gender, their approach to it, their views about it, 
how they've gotten written out of so many scriptures. And it's not just the Western religions. It's not just Abrahamic faiths. It's all across there. Even just now, you when you were referring to people who did peculiar, strange things, like going around naked. So what the hell's wrong with going around naked? Why does this matter? Why do we have this fetish about showing our bodies? One wonders, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Much more than one wonders, many wonders. <laughs> so I do tend to think, though, that because it happens in so many contrastingly very different cultures around the world, this obsession with, sometimes aversion to, this fear of sex and gender, that there's something there that is worth understanding why that is important. Again, I don't hold with categorizing people, limiting people, suppressing people, punishing people because they vary. That's very clearly wrong as far as I can understand. But I think that the presence throughout all of those cultures and religions and ways of looking at the world means that there's something important. So what does Liam Michael Hooper think is important about sex that it appears so widely? And does this have anything to do with transforming proclamation? Well, yes. So yes and yes. I think what's important is that this is a rather simplistic answer because, you know, we only have so much time together. But what's important is the way that sex has been codified, right? Like how we have thought about what does it mean that there are only two kinds of human beings, males determined by certain genitalia and females determined by certain genitalia. And both of those genitalia are assumed to be primarily for the purposes of reproduction. And one body does one thing and one body does another, right? And then we have this idea that then we can build entire social structures and systems around the way that we presume are the only two ways bodies come into the world is the source of many of our problems, right? Across human culture, the feminine back in, I think it was sort of the cusp of first to second wave feminism, where the observation was very clearly asserted by people like Adrian Rich and Audre Lorde, you know, people who formed me, whose work formed me, said that gender, how masculine or feminine a person is, and therefore sex, whether one is male or female, as we've determined to name these bodies, was the first cause of all oppression, now, you know, we can have some debate about that, but what I think is intriguing about that is that it was the recognition of the people in power after a certain point when cultures moved from being more matrilineal to being patrilineal and patriarchal, that part of hanging on to that power meant subordinating in various ways at different times in different places, people who were not male. And then certainly in the cultures that produce the Abrahamic texts in particular, there's this building of an entire culture around the tropes of penetration and who is penetrated. So even men who are penetrated, though they possess those same body parts, are much less than men who are penetrators. And so it's all about power and power dynamics. And for that reason, it matters. And at the same time, these assumptions we've made about how bodies come into the world are false. They're just simply false. The fact that we have terms in antiquity like saris and eunuch means we knew then, we've known all along that bodies don't always come into the world this way in only these two ways. And then we've made assumptions about how that's linked to chromosomal configuration, which we also know is not true. 
probably more than half of the bodies we distinguish as intersex, those that has to do with chromosomal configuration. So even when you have certain sets of chromosomes, whether it's XY or XX, right, that doesn't necessitate that certain genitalia or reproductive organs will follow. These are all false constructs that have been created mainly to support power. And whoever had the power defined how power is distinguished and distributed among those bodies. So all of that matters. And then you get people like us, like gender transcendent persons and intersex persons, our cousins, right, who I believe are part of all, we're all gender transcendent in some way. We really booger up the whole equation and it upsets people because it threatens the power dynamics that we've built entire societies around. Because then there's the deeper question. Well, if these things we perceive to be absolute are not, what else are we wrong about? The other question, what does that mean about me and my own body, right? Like it troubles people's waters. I propose in the book that part of the solution to that is to start leaning into trying to envision ways to get away from defining likeness as sameness. And coming to understand that part of the human condition, core and central to the human condition, is this idea of individuality and particularity, not individualism in the American narrative, right? This isolated island individualism, but individuals in a community of human beings connected to community. So I think that's my overall answer. That's a wonderful answer. And in addition, I still have this question about procreation. Um, I've had discussions over the years and recognize that certain power configurations, ideologies get ascendance. And this happens in not just human communities, but animal communities, because they're good at replication. That is to say, the Asian beetles that are the bane of my life, they multiply and they exist in our house and we clean out dozens of them at least each day. That Because they multiply at some incredible rate, they have an existence that's hard to resist. I have a feeling that sex is also important in religion because it has to do with multiplication. And that's why I think Catholics say birth control is bad because then we get to have more Catholics. And then if we, by weight of numbers, we get to control the narrative. And that can be done in a negative way, that is to say, a ascendancy of power. But one of the weaknesses, maybe on the left, where I situate myself politically, theologically, that if we don't multiply well, we go into non-existence. That's why evangelical Christians are so close to controlling the electorate in the United States, because they multiply much better. They sure do. And, <laughs> and so replication, which is can be related to procreation, is important that way too. And maybe that's why sex is also a key in terms of so many societies across the world. You should produce more of us. I would be inclined to agree with you. And I think what's fascinating about that is the assumption that somehow if a small representative number of people choose not to, somehow the entire human race is going to die out or the, you know, the people who are holding the power in a given society are going to die out. Well, they're not precisely because of what you named for one thing, but also there are people who want to have children and will continue to do so. To me, what's problematic 
even as fascinating as the circular logic is. What's problematic about that is that we've come to define personhood and how people are allowed to express personhood based upon how we replicate and that some bodies are prepared to serve certain functions and some other bodies are prepared to serve others shouldn't dictate who a person is. Like, why can't a man with a uterus bear a child? Why are we so boogered up about that? To me, it still comes back to power and the maintenance of power and the propagation of the powerful, as you've named, which I think is pretty insightful and right on target. I don't suppose, Liam, and folks, we are speaking with Liam Hooper, many titles and descriptions I could give to you for him, but we're addressing his book just issued called Transforming Proclamation, A Transgender Theology of Daring Existence. Website, liammichaelhooper.com. Questions on link come by on nordenspiritradio.org. Something I wanted to get into from your book, and I, I just think I'd be terribly remiss if I didn't address it, Again, I'm used to seeing your astuteness as part of Bible Bash. The way that you address the creation story in the Jewish scriptures, in the Torah, is so wonderful and so enlarging. And, and it really, for me, paints a perfect idea of how we've narrowed the words of scripture. We've washed out a great deal of the content, and that's why this mosaic is so important. You talk about the original mud beings. And I just love it if you'd wax eloquent about those verses and Adama and all of that, because I think it's so rich. Oh, see, now I have pressure to be as eloquent as I may perhaps have been in the book. Um, so I love you, Mark. Um, so what I'm doing is I spend, as you've noted, an enormous amount of time with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, primarily 2. And break down that Hebrew. I think one of the really problematic aspects of Christian supremacy, and I, you know, I was raised Christian. I don't, I want to make clear, I don't hate Christians, right? You know, I was one, I was an ordained minister before I converted. But one of the things that I think we're responsible for is the appropriation of the Hebrew text as Christian text, which it's not. And the misreading of it based on deeply problematic translations that are then often translations of translations, right? And very few Christian scholars who read Hebrew will actually address the Hebrew in a bold and textually centered way. And that causes a lot of problems. And one of them is that we have read Adam as a proper name, and as male, because we don't understand Hebrew and the vast majority of Christians in particular in the Abrahamic traditions can't read Hebrew. So this beautiful thing happened to me when I started studying Hebrew. I was like, oh, that whole language is poetic. And by that, I mean, it's deeply descriptive. It's highly metaphoric. Like to be angry in Hebrew, the word for anger in Hebrew means to flare your nostrils. The Hebrew word for blessing has a root word that means to take a knee it's a whole different mindset. And so when we recognize that there's depth to the language itself and then engage that when we read the text, we find Adam has this prefix in front of it, ha. So it's ha Adam. And that prefix ha means the. It's a definite article. So it means this one particular earth being. Adam is a masculine form of the same root, Adama, which means ground which is what you're talking about. So it literally means this person made from the ground, which the story tells us is what happened. God formed human beings from the ground in the story. Therefore, 
Adam, ha Adam, and it's ha Adam, ha Adam, ha Adam, over and over and over, verse after verse after verse. It only becomes Adam, a proper pronoun, after the separation surgery, this big cosmic surgery that differentiates this previously self-contained human into two, one we know as Hava, Eve, one we know as Adam, Adam. And this is itself really, really important. But it becomes even more important when we reflect back to Genesis 127, which I wait until the, you know, I hold off till the almost very end of the book to throw out the zinger about a more proper way of reading that particular verse. And this whole introductory poem, Genesis 1 is a poem, needs to be read as a poem. Genesis 2 is a poetic short story that refers back to that and elaborates on it, right? And so the statement I make throughout the whole book is that we can read Genesis 127, you know, that's traditionally translated male and female created God them, is a merism. And so in literature, a merism is it's a trope for encompassing a whole group of things by using the poles. So we might say everyone, young and old, attended the concert. Well, it doesn't mean only young people and only old people. It means everybody along the spectrum from young people to old people attended the concert. Male and female doesn't have to mean male and female only. So there's that. But then the basic proposition I make through the book is that God doesn't create. In fact, Dr. Joy Layden in Soul of the Stranger says, God doesn't create gender at all. Adam does, which is true. Human beings created gender. God created beings. And so if you look at the story, Adam is naming everything. God is making these things, presenting them to Adam, and Adam names them. And that determines what they will be. Adam creates gender. God creates beings. And I propose it's done for the sole purpose of creating relationship. God created us to be in relationship with God. God created us in a way that we could be in relationship with one another. And the separation occurred by necessity that God realized, oh, the Adam is still alone and doesn't have what even the animals have. The Adam needs a like, but not same other to be in relationship with. There's such, such rich insight that comes from this. I have always been actually troubled by the whole idea that, the translation, the Catholic book that I read, translation of the Bible, when it says God created them in his image, male and female, he created them. It's like, wait a minute, that means God is female too, right? Isn't it? I got that even in English. And so this whole idea that God is always male was very problematic for me intellectually, just from the translation I read. Actually, the very first Quaker meeting that I sat in, it was in someone's living room. I didn't really know what Quakers were. I certainly didn't have a tradition of meditation. So I sat there for that hour of silence and I said, well, I guess I should think something profound while I'm here. So (laughs) I, I thought about that part of Genesis where, you know, they're not supposed to eat from the fruit of that tree. Because God says, on that day, you will surely die. And then the devil comes along in the form of a snake and says, no, actually, God doesn't want you to eat it because then you'll know the difference between right and wrong. You'll know good and evil if you eat from that fruit of that tree. So they go eat from it. And what the snake said is true. They then know right from wrong. So God lied. That was my insight from sitting in my first Quaker meeting. 
<laughs> well, you know, either God lied or the serpent misrepresented. Because the way I read that, I'm wondering what your thoughts on this, is that by the act of violating the injunction not to eat it, you come to know that you can choose to do the bad, whatever it is. And so by eating it, you learn the difference between, oh, this is the good thing I'm supposed to do and this is the bad thing I'm supposed to do. And you come to embrace the ability to choose, which it's also, you know, at a textual level, what the text is doing is not giving us a factual history, which this, I talk about this all throughout the book, as you know. It's a mimesis, right? As Dr. Clinton Moyer would say in his upcoming book, it's mimetic. It's explaining why the world is the way it is. Why do people choose to do bad things? Like, why do people choose good? Why do they choose bad? What's going on? How does the world come to be like it is if there's God? Remember, so one of the points I make is that none of the Hebrew text in particular in a way very different from the Christian text, was meant to be a justification of God or a proof of God. These texts were written in a culture that assumed there were gods, that gods or God was present in the cosmos. That was an assumption. These stories are concerned with who is this God and who are we in relationship to this God? And so without saying it, one of the questions I'm asking in the book is why does it matter and how should it inform what we think and how we act and how we comport ourselves. And I hope I'm offering us some places to look into that. But before we go, the other thing I want to say, so people know, and I hope we'll read the book, is I have a lot more to say about Genesis 127 and this idea of the image of God, which is false. And I don't want to, I don't know if we want to give that away because then nobody has to read it, right? But it doesn't say the image and read my book to find out what it actually says. Again, the book is Trans-Forming, Transforming Proclamation, A Transgender Theology of Daring Existence by Liam Michael Hooper. His website, liammichaelhooper.com. We've scratched the surface. Again, this book is a mosaic. It's a poetic mosaic. It's got deep thought course throughout it. It's like veins of gold throughout. You'll find rich language, rich insight, and you'll find a heart for loving more people, including more people in the community and valuing the pieces of the mosaic that everyone has to contribute. So I do urge you to read Transforming Proclamation by Liam Michael Hooper liammichaelhooper.com, come by nordenspiritradio.org. And Liam, thank you again for joining me, and thank you for the constant gift of Bible Bash that you and Peterson Toscano contribute to the world and occasionally as Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. It's a joy to be with you always, and thank you for your kind and generous reading of my book and your engagement with it. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to me to be able to talk with you about it. I hope we'll do it again. We will be sure of that. LiamMichaelHooper.com. Your homework assignment, folks, is to read Transforming Proclamation before we get together next week when you again join us for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo. 